Welcome to this episode of the Rough Draft Podcast. I'm your host, Olivia, and uh, my co-host for today is the copy editor of the York Review, Alyssa. Hi. (laughs) Um, Our first guest today to talk with us on the subject of women in literature is Dr. Cope, a professor at York College of Pennsylvania and my very own advisor. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. All right. um, We're just going to start off with a softball. Um, what's your favorite food? <laughs> <laughs> so the secret is that we just did a dress no! rehearsal of this. Um, and You're so now so now I know my answer, which is beer and um, tacos. But on actually, honestly, like the reason I can't pick a favorite food is because I love traveling and I love eating whatever like is sort of. Yeah, well, and, like, whatever is sort of local. So, for me, like, food and travel go together, and I'm like, I like all of it. Not literally all of it, but a lot of it. Yeah. And, like, the the, the little intersection between, like, the food and the culture. Yeah. And how they, like, bounce off each other. Yeah. Super cool. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, so, our first women in literature question is uh, favorite women-centered novels. Okay. So, my favorite novel of all time that I read every year, every summer, is Gaudy Night by Dorothy Sayers. And Dorothy Sayers was sort of one of the golden era women uh, detective fiction novelists. And there's like a whole slew of them. Um, But Dorothy Sayers' novel Gaudy Night is not one that she's most famous for. Um, Most of her protagonists are men, actually. But this little mini series that she has is about a woman novelist who was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, just like Dorothy Sayers. Um, And she um, is sort of approaching middle age, the the, um, heroine, and uh, solving detective or sorry, solving mysteries, writing detective fiction and thinking about um, like whether she can have... um, a life of the mind, whether making money um, is, you know, like an okay goal for her work or whether she should be writing great literature, you know, all these sort of problems um, and, and, and choices that adults have to make. And so for me, it's just one of those foundational texts that I go back and read every summer because it resonates with me so much. Um, so that one would be like an all-time favorite uh, novel that I read on a regular basis, but there are so many. It's pretty hard to pick favorite novels. Um, but Middlemarch would be right up there with Gaudy Night. Um, it has similar themes. Apparently I have like a type or <laughs> my own issues to work through. But um, yeah, like how much, how important is the life of the mind versus a life of action, right? So like sort of the debate about um, whether to be sort of a political activist or um, a scholar, right? These sorts of things. So I I like women who are nerdy, apparently, and books about women kind of thinking through um, what they want to do with their lives. From that time period, uh, it feels like a lot of women wrote about their experience in a way and Mm -hmm. uh, wrote being like, this is totally not about me mm-hmm. however right his main character is going to be a lot like me mm-hmm. but if my life were a lot better yeah <laughs> and i like uh novels like that too mm-hmm. because i read a lot of uh novels like that in uh, dr Beatty's uh women in u.s history class last semester oh cool and 
they were really great except yeah. at the end a lot of them ended up dead and sad <laughs> yeah i mean right so i was thinking of some of the other like just incredible there's so many but like female novelists and like I was thinking of um Edith Wharton <laughs> it's like yeah that those those usually don't end so well for for the women right um Gaudy Knight I wouldn't say it's a happily ever after at all but like it's definitely like she makes a choice and is happy with her choice you know yeah. um also she catches the bad the bad lady. Um, it wasn't a bad guy. It was a, a woman. So anyway, um, yeah, I know, I know a lot of historical women's fiction can be pretty bleak and that's fair. Yeah. I wanted to mention a book too, that I read recently that is not, um, you asked me sort of about women centered novels and like this one is not strictly that, but it has an amazing woman character in it and that was um trevor noah's book born a crime which is actually a memoir right about um his experience growing up in south africa and he's clearly the main character i guess if we want to talk about it in those terms but his mom is like oh my gosh (laughs) yeah so trevor noah's mom i can't remember her name but she's one of the most interesting women that i've read about in a while um in part because she is like this very devoted religious woman who's a mother and I, I study religious rhetoric. So I was just fascinated by, um, by Trevor Noah's mom and his characterization of her and how complex she was. Like she was amazing in a lot of ways, um, you know, and a total, totally normal human in a lot of other ways. So um, just to add to the list of like interesting women in literature, um, Trevor Noah's mom. Hmm. Um, So we're going to move on to our next question. Uh, What does the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which is this year, uh, mean to you? All right. So I, yeah, I think this is really hard to even respond to because it's um something I can't imagine not being part of like the world I live in so it's not like I'm one of those people who can remember a time before or something like that I know that I'm older than you all but like I'm not that old um so so it's really it's really difficult to even conceptualize that however I'm from Rochester New York where a lot of this all went down a lot of the women's suffrage um, leaders are from that area or kind of collected there so like Frederick Douglass was there with um, you know Elizabeth Cady Stanton and like all these other people that we associate and they're all buried there in my hometown so I can like go to the their graves it's really cool anyway um, but I think that one of the things that's made me um, think about the women's right to vote stuff and like the era and the movement is having my own children, both of whom are boys, and um, wanting to educate them um, and wanting to raise feminists. So last year at the 100 year anniversary of the voting of, about the 19th Amendment, so not the passage, but the vote of the amendment, um, we went down to D.C. and did a whole bunch of different kind of events that were related to women's suffrage. And one of them was this great day at the Daughters of the American Revolution Museum. And they had all these really cool activities um, for kids to do related to this event. So one of them was um, creating a family tree 
but it was a family tree that was just like the great women of your family. And it was so like precious to me, first of all, to see my kids like drawing their little crayon pictures of my sisters and my mom and me. Um, but also there were like these photo booths where we, they could wear some of the, um, banners and the, like, I guess the sashes from, um, the women's suffrage movement. And, um, my, I have this really sweet picture of my son waving a, a flag. That's the, um, well, he's got the American flag in one hand and then he's got like, uh, the, the suffrage colors, which were purple, white, and yellow, or kind of gold, I guess. Um, and so I think, like, as a mom sharing that history and reminding my boys that, like, no, you know, discrimination against women is, like, a very real historical fact and, and, and an ongoing reality as well um, has been important to me recently. All right. Um, so talking more about the uh, um, the suffrage movement. Um, so even as early as like its beginnings, uh, the suffrage movement has had some issues with uh, inclusion and uh, intersectionality, most notoriously in regard to the rights of black women. To what degree do you see um, this lack of diversity still being an issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge problem. So, um, you know, historically, the women's suffrage movement and the abolition movement were linked. And um, Frederick Douglass was a huge ally to the women's suffrage movement. I mean, it, that's not even like the right thing to call it. He wasn't an ally. Like he was part of that movement, you know, um, but that wasn't always true reciprocally. So, um Clearly, white women got the right to vote, but that didn't, you know, that didn't translate for all women, right? Um, and clearly, white women still have a lot of privileges that lots of other um, women don't have. So, yeah, I think this is like one of the big issues that sort of like the women's um, march, for example, has kind of. Uh, bumped up against. Um, so I was at the the Women's March in 2017 in D.C. And, um, you know, the joke kind of around the time was like brunch and protest, right? The idea that like it's such a white middle class thing to do is to go out and protest, but only like after we had our mimosas or whatever, right? And um, so like, yeah, that's, that's sort of an icky reality of the kind of modern... Um, some some strands of the modern feminist movement and I like I don't there are so many people who care about this and talk about this and are actively working against it um but it is um something I think that we white women have to learn to to listen and accept leadership from people who um who bring different perspectives and experiences why do you think novels within the genre of feminist dystopian literature are being popular popularized right now? Um, examples like *The Handmaid's Tale* by um, Oh my God, Margaret Atwood. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, *Red Cox*. Yeah, well, so it's funny that you ask me this because I do not like these novels at all. Okay, um, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> I was talking to Dr. Kutrafello about this, and I was like. I don't read these. I don't watch these shows. Like, 
it's just not my genre. Um, but uh, clearly, like, this is a moment for them. So I like I totally get that, at least as a scholar, if not if not a fan. No, I, I'm with you. Yeah. I, I don't get them. Yeah. I'm, I'm just not like a science fiction or alternate history slash any of those kind of dystopian things. Like, I think the world we live in is just bleak enough. I <laughs> genuinely don't need to, to read about it. But I mean, clearly, like it helps to articulate and express and give people access to like experiencing some of those bleaker, um, hopeless feelings that women like legitimately are experiencing right now. So, you know, I think that's great. And I in particular think that um, those, those TV shows, um, cause let's be real. Most people are watching those t- shows, not reading the books. Um, I think that those, shows uh, allow a wider range of people to think about these issues. So, for example, a ton of men watch, you know, these sort of feminist dystopian um, shows as well. And I think that's valuable to get a broader cultural conversation about um, misogyny or, you know, restriction of women's rights um, and other things like that. So they're beneficial. I just personally... I'm not going to spend my free time <laughs> reading them. Talk to Dr. Kucherfellow. He loves that stuff. Right. Um, and then going pretty immediately off that uh, for our last sort of major question, is literature as a medium outdated in terms of furthering the cause, the cause of equality for women? If, if, if it is, what mediums should be focused on? Yeah. Um, I don't know. You guys picked a non-literature professor to ask about this. Like, mm-hmm. I'm a rhetorician, which means... Um, you know, rhetoric is interested in like what's effective and what's persuasive. So I'm not attached to like highbrow things per se, right? So if you mean literature in that kind of highbrow way, yeah, like it's not very, I'm not going to say it's not important. It is like it, it, it creates conversations and it spurs ideas and thinking, but it's, it's limited. There's other stuff that's more effective. Well, or like, yeah, more popular and reaches more audiences. Right. So, um, like the fact that literature kind of, um, comes into the culture through television is important. Um, and so for me, like television shows are super important genres of um, this sort of narrative storytelling that gets at women's experiences and um, and also not just women's experiences, but minority experiences. So I, you know, I think the more that we can kind of um, all watch TV together that like shows how different people live is like super positive. Um, I was thinking of a couple shows that I thought um were really great like i don't know if you guys have seen top of the lake so it's um an australian show i think it's on netflix super dark actually kind of dystopian i mean not exactly but um oh i don't i can't even describe it it's so amazing you guys need to watch it um but it deals with um you know, professional discrimination of women. It deals with indigenous women um, and like the abuse of girls. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's like this amazing, um, dark show. Detective as well. <laughs> uh, the other show I was thinking about that I think has done a really good job of sort of addressing women's issues um, is 
well, this is more controversial, but The Fall, which is also on Netflix, it's a set in Northern Ireland, contemporary, again, detective (laughs) show, but um, Gillian Anderson from The X-Files is the lead, and she's sort of this middle-aged female detective um, and working just in a, a system and in a culture of the police force that is not designed for women um, and not appreciative of, you know, bisexual women, like all of these things. So I think like there's some really great TV that's getting there, although a lot of it still is pretty white lady centric. Um, Top of the Lake would be an exception to that. And, you know, there's there's certainly some shows um, like I was thinking of Kim's Convenience, um, which is just a great comedy out of Canada that kind of deals with family dynamics, but women play a big role and it's about immigration. And so there's there's lots of good stuff on TV. But I also was thinking with this question about um, lo- kind of what we what literature scholars might consider lowbrow texts. So like romance novels, Um like zillions of women read romance. And so to me, that's a really important genre for transforming um, like messages about feminism. It's not my favorite genre, but I know that there's some um, newer romance writers like Tessa Dare is one um, who kind of writes from a feminist perspective. And then Alyssa Cole, who also writes from a feminist, but also black perspective. So she they're both historical um, romance novelists, kind of like 19th century-ish uh, time period. But um, Alyssa Cole writes about like free black women in the Civil War, um, women who are doing like really amazing heroic things, you know, um, like on the Underground Railroad or, or things um, related to espionage. So those kind of popular genres, I think, have a lot of potential to um, to influence yeah and and to and to like just reach people who are not gonna read Middlemarch right um and like there's all sorts of problems with with romance as a genre especially for like feminists but there's lots of people who are talking about it in better ways so I was gonna recommend a cool website called um smart bitches trashy books (laughs) and it's Definitely like a feminist take on all sorts of uh, popular genres. So not just romance, like also fiction, detective fiction, which is kind of how I found my way to it. All the sci-fi, all the fantasy, that kind of stuff. So there's a huge community of feminists, readers, writers, um, and consumers who are interested in popular content that, um, you know, is progressive for women in some way. Last question, just super quick. What's your favorite movie? Oh, God. In general, it doesn't have to be feminist. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite movie. I'm such a TV person. Like, The Fall is my favorite TV show. Um, But uh, The Painted Veil is one of my favorites, set in China. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have a million but mainly I just get to watch what my kids watch. So a lot of like kind of dumb comedies right now, which is great. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming on today. It was great having you. Thanks, guys.
Our next guest is Dr. Beatty. Uh, she teaches uh, early American history at your College of Pennsylvania. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, so we're going to open up with a quick softball. What's your favorite food? My favorite food? Uh, cheese. Uh, I know that's any, not very specific. Just, just any kind. Literally never tried a cheese that I didn't like. So it would be devastating if I somehow um, developed lactose intolerance in my later life. But See, I have lactose intolerance, but I'm also like not a coward. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, like for my anniversary, uh, me and my girlfriend, we got fondue just because like, right. you know, we're not cowards. Um, yeah, so I totally, I, I understand the, the, the love of cheese. Yeah, I think I, I might take that same tack, right? Because cheese is, you know, too important to me yeah. to totally do without, even if it caused me to be physically ill, you know? Yeah. Some things are just too important. Uh, so our first question related to uh, women's literature is, uh, what is your favorite women-centered novel? What are your favorite women-centered novels? Yeah, so uh, I think this is a really hard question for me because most of the non-historical stuff that I read is women-centered. Um, but I think what I find really compelling is um, novels that take women seriously as complex, very complicated figures rather than one-dimensional figures that some of the older literature, some popular literature does. Um, so two books that I read recently that I think are really good examples of this. Um, one is called Long Bright River, about two sisters in Philadelphia, um, one who is a police officer and one who has uh, uh, opioid addiction and how the two manage their relationship. Um, and the other is one called Disappearing Earth, which is actually about women in a small Russian peninsula whose lives all intersect in different and kind of complicated ways. Um, so I think... Those are the most recent novels that I've read that come to mind, but just trying to draw out the complexity of women's experiences, I think, uh, are really important. Um, in terms of books I've read in recent years and even as a kind of young adult, I think there's a lot of YA literature out there that is also showing strong female characters that's really important. Um, you know, they are complex as well, but I think particularly for young people who are kind of coming of age, having novels that show strong female characters um, who aren't afraid of the world are really important. So there are dystopian fiction uh, series like The Hunger Games or Divergent that have those kinds of characters. But one of the um, more recent series that I read was called uh, Queen of the Tearling, um, which if, if you haven't read, I highly recommend. It's um, I don't actually want to give anything away, but very worth your time. Um, so yeah, that would be that would be my short list, although I could go on for a really long time. Right. Uh, another question in the same vein of favorite women writers. Yeah, so um, also most of my fav favorite women writers are uh, women historians who write about women, um, and I'm sure your listeners aren't really um, that invested in reading historical monographs, but... I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know our demographics yeah. that well. <laughs> <Yeah>. well <laughs> there, there's a very real possibility that there is some overlap. <laughs> yeah, some, some history nerds out there. Um, well, I was going to say a lot of, of what I um, like in terms of popular literature... Um, I don't read a whole lot of historical fiction in my field because it makes me cringe a little when things are, you know, that I know they're blatantly inaccurate, but I do read some historical fiction in um, Tudor and Stuart England, um, which I find interesting, but don't know enough about to critique the factual inaccuracies. So there's um, Philippa Gregory writes the series about um, Tudor and Stuart women um, 
Queen Elizabeth in particular that I really have enjoyed. Um, Jodi, I'm going to say her last name wrong. Piku? I think she's, it's got a French last name, but I've, I've never had to say it out loud. She is somebody who kind of cranks out a book every year. They're usually on the bestseller looks Very popular fiction, but what I think she does that's important is take kind of controversial issues um, and kind of make them um, accessible to people um, who maybe have a hardened opinion one way or the other and um, she uses the storytelling to get her readers to empathize with people on all sides of the spectrum of these issues, right? She has definitely an agenda in the way that she presents the stories, but you get to empathize and understand the people that are part of this story um, in a way that I think historians try to do with their writing, too, to get us to understand the larger world. We have to empathize with people from different backgrounds with different perspectives. Um, and another author I really like is a woman named J. Courtney Sullivan, who's a little bit younger and kind of uses her uh, feminist chops to inform her novel writing. Um, one in particular, I think it was called Commencement, uh, was really good. And I read that right around the time I was graduating college and it really resonated with me. So that's my kind of fiction end of things. Um, for the historian side, we'd have to walk down the hall to my office and I would just point out every single <laughs> book on my shelf and it would be uh, another kind of avalanche, but yeah. Um, so the centennial of the 19th Amendment is this year. So what does that mean to you? Yeah, this is, uh, you guys gave me a lot of hard questions. This is hard <laughs> to um, kind of quantify, I think, because it's obviously incredibly important that women earned, some women, I should say, earned the right to vote 100 years ago, right? Um, that was incredibly hard fought, um, and we should celebrate it. But as we know, it was not um, a complete victory for all women, right? Um, black women in particular are not going to have the right to vote until we have civil rights legislation in the 1960s, for example. Um, but I also think it's imperative at this moment to celebrate even a, um, a victory that is not complete, like the 19th Amendment, because I think, you know, I, I notice this a lot with my students who feel very disenfranchised by our political system and think that their vote, you know, it's just one vote, it doesn't matter. Um, and it's hard to convey how... Um, Unfortunate that is because so many people fought and, you know, in the case of the civil rights movement, people martyred themselves in order to gain the right to vote. And this has been such a hard slog through U.S. history for students to feel like that effort is not worth it and will not bring about any change is very discouraging. So I think um, it's important to recognize this moment and what it took to get to the 19th Amendment in order to um, impress upon people how critical the vote is, particularly in an age where we see voter suppression um, on the rise uh, at the local, state, and national level. Um, and I'm going to take this moment to plug an event we have on campus, and I'm going to pass you guys a flyer. Um, oh, this is new. This yes, is the first. Yes, so <laughs> self-promotion? Yeah, no. Um, so on March 19th, um, we have a group of scholars coming to York College um, to talk about um, the limits of the 19th Amendment and what women were able to do in terms of political activism and political power before and after the 19th Amendment, right? Because I think, 
even people who recognize the importance of the 19th Amendment uh, think that maybe it's the end all and be all of women's political participation. But we historians know that women were not politically inactive or politically powerless before the 19th Amendment. And even women who aren't very active voters can be very engaged politically and have a lot of influence and power. Um, and of course, that the 19th Amendment is problematic and, and the kind of movement to pass the 19th Amendment was problematic. And uh, we have three historians coming um, to speak to us about those issues. And also the former mayor of York, um, Kim Bracey, is going to be coming and talking about her experience in politics. So uh, that is my March 19th at 6.30 p.m. on campus in Demeester Hall, and it is free and open to the public. So we'd love to see you. Um, so sort of uh, spinning off into a different area, why do you think novels within the genre of feminist dystopian literature are being popularized right now? Uh, stuff like The Handmaid's Tale uh -huh. or uh, Red Clocks, stuff like that. Yeah, uh, I think because people are afraid. Um, I think that the... Well, I, The Handmaid's Tale is a different case because it was published in the 1980s, but Margaret Atwood has come out and said that it was published... Um, she wrote this book um, kind of reflecting the conservative backlash in American politics, even though she's a, a Canadian author, um, uh, during the Reagan administration and some of the social policies that um, were kind of pushed in that conservative backlash. Um, but more recently, I mean, um, Red Clocks is one. Um, there's also a book called The Power and one that I read recently called Vox. Um, all feminist dystopian literature that speak to ways in which the state, the government, um, is working to inhibit women's power and women's voices. Vox, quite literally, is a novel about how women are only allowed to speak a certain amount of words per day, and there are physical penalties if they go over that limit. So I think um, kind of social changes um, and um, legal changes and the threat of legal changes motivates a lot of authors to um, kind of imagine a world in which some of the policy proposals that are being put forth now might become a reality and what those consequences look like. Red Clocks is an interesting example because I think, as we found in our class last fall, it didn't seem like that different of a world. And some of the students argued that it wasn't necessarily a dystopian fiction because it was so close to our own reality, even though some of the um, kind of measures were a bit more extreme in the novel itself. All right. Um, is literature as a medium outdated in terms of furthering the cause of equality for women? If so, what mediums should be focused on? I don't think it's outdated. Um, I think, you know, dystopian literature is one example of ways in which the realm of literature has adapted to our very kind of fast-paced, digital, low-attention span world, right, to give audiences something that is compelling to them. Um, you know, I think dystopian literature is a genre that has been very much on the rise and that has kind of um, kept people invested. And as I said, it's a very kind of powerful um, target for audiences that have these um, kind of anxieties about the future. Um, but I think there are other mediums that are also successful. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale was adapted into a television series that has done quite well and has now um, pushed the storyline beyond just what Margaret Atwood imagined originally and has won a number of awards, is very popular. Um, but also film. I mean, all, all of these popular media that reach the people where they are um, and kind of tap into their 
um, desire for entertainment, but um, can be instructive in that regard are important. But I, I know, you know, maybe some older generations think that young people aren't reading anymore. I just don't necessarily think that's true. They're just reading different kinds of things. Yeah. All right. Um, last question, sort of a, a cool down, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, what is your favorite movie? Just all time. Oh, Does easy. It... Sound of Music. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the fastest we've ever had a favorite movie yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was something I grew up with. I grew up watching a lot of musicals. I love, love Julie Andrews. Um, yeah. And <laughs> the scenery yeah. doesn't suck, right, being in the Alps. Um, and, you know, it's a little, um, the story's a little saccharine, but it's still, I think, fun. And it's a nostalgia thing for me, too. It's, it's a um, kind of comfort when you know, things aren't going so well. It's a movie I turn on to feel better. So that, yeah, that's an easy question. Yeah. Not as easy as cheese, but you know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for yeah. coming on. Yeah. Um, March 19th, uh, the Beyond the Vote event uh, in Demeester Hall, uh, 6.30 p.m. If you can, show up to that. Um, we will also plug your thing. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Rough Draft Podcast. If you liked it, give it a like, follow us on Spotify or SoundCloud or any other places your podcasts are sold. We're working on getting ourselves onto many more platforms. Um, thank you so much to Bella Gilbert and Dr. Kraft for coming on. Our next episode comes out in two weeks on the 11th of March, and we'll be discussing women in literature with uh, two professors from the York College of Pennsylvania in honor of the centennial anniversary of the 19th Amendment. So stay tuned. Bye-bye.